Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Welcome to episode 000. To well, quite frankly, I still haven't gotten to the bottom of what actual episode number we're up to at the moment here on the mission on 102.73 Triple R FM. So, but I do promise for next week, which will be the final week uh, of the show for this year, I will have a uh, correct number as to what episode we are actually up to because um, I know it's just so important to uh, all of you out there. Uh, thank you to Billy Shears for an excellent version of Double Bounce. Vaughnia will be back next week, but uh, Billy will be filling in, I believe, uh, during the course of the summer. So I look forward to hearing him back then, but also I look forward to hearing Vaughnia back next week. Um, and as you know, I am broadcasting, you probably can hear it, from the end of the 96th line, which of course is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And to any mob that are out there listening either through Triple R right now or through the National Indigenous Radio Service across this big brown wide land of ours. Uh, I hope you can stick around for the next hour because we have a very interesting discussion, I'm sure, coming up with uh, Professor Megan Davis, who, as you know, was one of the main proponents of the Yes campaign during the recent referendum. Uh, you may have noticed that last uh, this week and last week, um, we will be talking about the referendum, and I have my reasons. I host a show called The Mission on Triple R, which talks about uh, Aboriginal people, the issues that we face, and those of us at the wrong end of the social justice arc in this country. So why not use it to decompress or, I guess, debrief from what happened, I feel like, to us during the course of this year when it came to the referendum. Everyone was given an option to do, decide whether there would be a voice to Parliament and not only did people decide on that, but, but people also had their views on a whole range of things relating to Aboriginality, service provision, um, Aboriginal people's role in the democracy that we loosely describe as Australia and it's had an impact and there are so many other horrible things and, and pressures in this world uh, happening, of course, on the other side of the world, but also things like cost of living here, which is really beginning to bite home for a lot of people at the moment, that uh, the national conversation is taken up by those issues, and, and rightly so. But I thought, well, while I'm hosting a show called The Mission on Triple R, I'm going to use this little patch, this little one hour a week that we have to talk about these issues to get some of the key players that are involved with the referendum and talk to them about what we just went through collectively. And I guess not only for Aboriginal people, but for the broader community, because there has been little or no time to decompress from it. So hopefully these conversations in real time, and once they go up online at rr.org.au, will give people an opportunity in their own sweet time to have a think about what we went through, have a think about how we in this country has still got to deal with the ongoing impacts of the genocide that happened here and the catastrophe that continues to happen when it comes to the way Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are treated in Australia. 
hopefully people will get a chance to think about that in the weeks and months to come because there's still so much unfinished business when it comes to Aboriginal people and our place in this country. So that's our little part of what we're going to do here on this show. Um, my final show is next week. Maybe I'll try and get a couple of guests in and we'll have a, a debrief about the year that was because it has been one hell of a year, as I'm sure you can uh, agree and or appreciate. Uh, so I'll be uh, speaking with Professor Megan Davis in about five minutes' time. While I'm here, I wanted to give um, a shout-out to my mum, who has turned 70 today. Uh, so many happy returns and, and uh, birthday wishes to you, Mum. Uh, she's not in the greatest health at the moment, so I hope she's had a lovely day. I think she was taken out to uh, lunch at the Port of Echuca by, uh, by my sister. So I hope she had a wonderful time. Um, she's got a very, very bad back. So if there's any back doctors out there or people that uh, know <laughs> any back doctors out there, contact me via my socials um, because I'll be happy to chat with you because she's in... Uh, an extraordinary amount of agony most of the time. Triple. Ah. To our first and only guest this evening, who has just penned an article in this month's edition of The Monthly, titled Truth After the Voice. Professor Megan Davis is a cobble-cobble woman of the Barangam Nation in southwest Queensland and is of southeast island descent. Her curriculum vitae is huge. She's a pro-vice-chancellor of Indigenous at University of New South Wales and a professor of law uh, at the University of uh, New South Wales uh, Law as well and is a distinguished scholar and advocate for human rights. She's renowned for her expertise in constitutional law, Indigenous rights and international law and has made tremendous contributions to these fields throughout her illustrious career. Uh, she's also a uh, formerly the chair and expert member of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. She's an NRL commissioner and she was, and probably still is, I would imagine, still the uh, co-chair of the Uluru Dialogues. I could keep going, but we've only got uh, another 43 minutes left to uh, go. So let's just get uh, the professor on the line right now. Professor Megan Davis, welcome to the mission. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that long introduction. Yeah, well, like I said, I could have gone for much, much longer, but um, I thought it was best to wrap it up there. I think people get the gist. Um, <laughs> thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. I know that you're tremendously busy, but let's just start off. I mean, you were extremely busy throughout the course of the referendum and lead up to it. Um, have you found the the... Have you found the, the process of decompressing after being so busy and such a central um, uh, focus point um, in, as part of a national conversation? Have you, have you adapted to, to the change? I think um, it's been um, you know, a difficult period for most mob, I think. And, um, yeah, for someone... I mean, I've been working on it for 12 years formally in the sense that it's been a process the Commonwealth has engaged our people on for a 12-year period. Um, I think, you know, three formal mechanisms, about three parliamentary committees, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like it's it's kind of October 14 comes and you pull up stumps and that's, that's you know, seemingly the end of it, although it's not. But certainly as a constitutional lawyer, I mean, part of the reason I became one was because of the importance of structural reform to um, 
community. Um, and I kind of grew up in that tail end of the attic era, that, um, you know, mm-hmm. after law school being an attic, a legal counsel in attic and listening and hearing for a lot of the constitutional matters. Um, and and so, yeah, like it's, it's been kind of 20 years or 12 years or every 10, seven years since the Uluru Statement. So it's a lot and it's been a lot, yeah, it's going to be a lot to adjust. But um, I guess one of the driving forces that gets you out of bed every day is there is, there is actually a huge demand from the 6 million who voted yes. Mm-hmm. We kind of want to know what to do, how we regroup, you know, what's the future hold. And, you know, they say they've got, you know, a stake in this as well. Um, so there's, there's so much to, you know, get out of bed and continue on with. Yeah, there's been, um, because of horrors across the other side of the world and a whole bunch of other issues that people are facing in their daily lives at the moment, there's been little or no real proper analysis of the October 14 result, except from people like your good self in, in this article. What have you made of some of the analysis that you've seen in the wake of the referendum? Because there are, the people are people coming up with very different theories as to what went down. Yeah, I mean, I think there's all different kind of analysis. I mean, today, I think Ken White saying, you know, Aussies were supported symbolic recognition and legislate the voice, but I mean, the, the entire purpose of the referendum council was that we said no to symbolic recognition in 2015. Um, and the Kiribati statement sets that out. Um, and in a recognition exercise, that matters. Um, the voice was the form of recognition and symbolic recognition, a statement of recognition, was rejected. Mm. Um, and it, I, I find it hard to reconcile, hard to understand how the media politicians and so many people don't understand that point. Um, nobody in our communities, at least the process that we ran for Uru um, and what you hear generally on Facebook and Aboriginal media is that people would not support a preamble, um, our people, mm-hmm. um, because it doesn't do anything. Um, and so the whole purpose of the setting up of the referendum council was to find something that people could agree on um, that wasn't just symbolism. And, that, and I so think it's good that, to remind people that that referendum council was a by, was asked um, by government and by the leader of the opposition to establish a process to constitutional refer, um, recognition. The Uluru dialogues were the culmination of that. And the, the message from those dialogues was, we want more than just a preamble. We want a mechanism to actually try and improve outcomes for First Nations people. And that's what you would call self-determination, isn't it? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. When you think about all of the thought and effort that went into this and the amount of taxpayer money, and there's just this um, convenient amnesia in the political class about how we got to a voice referendum. Um, But that's how we got there. Um, And it's easy to say now because I think people like to find rational reasons for... Um, having voted no, and and one of those is that, that symbolism, I would have voted for symbolism. Well, you know what? Polls this year show that Australians wouldn't vote for a statement of recognition, that they wouldn't vote yes to symbolism. And we had that in 1999. There was a statement of recognition in the preamble to the Republic referendum. So we already know that it won't be supported by the Australian people. 
Um, but, but most of the analysis was straight off the bat. It was the Australian media kind of exonerating itself and exonerating the Australian people of of what had happened in that vote. Yeah, that it was yeah. a rational vote and um, it wasn't racism. That was, you know, in the in the monthly, I, I single that out as one of the most problematic things. You have our people saying racism has increased and there was significant racism um, experienced during the campaign and some of that I set out that my team and myself experienced on polling day. And all you get back from the Australian media is it wasn't racism, it wasn't racism, it wasn't racism. And we do that over and over again in so many areas. Yeah. Um, and they just rule that out, you know, it wasn't racism. They don't talk to anyone. They can't demonstrate that it wasn't racism. They just say... It wasn't, and we're just supposed to accept that, and the whole nation, the whole caravan moves on. Well, you know, let's, um, let's, let's talk about your experience on, on polling day itself. I mean, you write in the article that um, uh, you, at a Brisbane polling station, um, an SUV had zipped around the primary school car park screaming, vote no to petrol sniffers. Um, later, earlier in the day, uh, a voter put a finger in your sister's face and screamed, next to you, Abos will want my property. And then there was a female voter who calmly said to you, you weren't here first, and then claimed uh, pygmies were, which is one of, of course, one of the great um, conspiracy theories that uh, yeah. rednecks have. Um, I think if you ask any Aboriginal person that was either formally involved uh, or not formally involved in the referendum, they would tell you to a person that this problem, this, this country has a racism problem. And yeah. that... As you argue in, in the in the article, is really at the heart of the outcome on October fourteen. Mm. Yeah, um, it, we, I mean, many of my team and myself, we all experienced racism over the course of it, but nothing so intense as that polling day. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember talking to my brother Willie, who runs Aboriginal Housing in Beenleigh. And he said to me, he said, Megan, you know, the hardest thing about the racism wasn't so much the verbal verbalising of it. He said it was the quietness of it. He said, you know, at the ballot, at the polling booth, you had people that you'd grown up with, played cricket with, your kids grew up together, you went to school with, just silently walking past, smiling, you know, and, and he's like, and they all went to vote no. He's like, he said that was, that was the hardest thing part about it, the silence of it. Um, but, but yeah, as I said, in addition to it, the really overt acts of racism where people just felt like they were entitled to say what, what they want uh, with no consequences for that. Um, you can hear in some of the racist comments that the misinformation, the disinformation, the, the just unbridled racism unleashed by the no campaign um, and their Facebook campaigns had just washed um, over so many communities. I had to ring the AEC at one polling booth because they were handing out that document that had like 30 myths and included the pygmy myth and the ATSIC is corrupt and the, you know, and the AEC came and um, expelled this guy from the grounds and took his material. But I wonder how many people actually rang the AEC when you saw, mm. um, you know, there were a lot of underhanded techniques in this campaign and um, and just so many, you know, as you said, myths and um, fictions that we've heard for 
for so long that you know predate Pauline Hanson a lot of Hanson Hansonisms mm-hmm. um, still just really prevalent um, in the community, um, and so that was that was really that was really difficult I think for all of the community that are very. I mean, I don't. I don't think it was the majority of the no voters, but it, but certainly a solid percentage of the community who felt it was okay to 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 talk like that and behave like that. I guess a lot of those, uh, a lot of the racism was online, and a lot of the mistruths and lies came from online um, online as well, and a lot of um, the talking points came from the conservative no side as well, and those things were propagated online. But that then fed into conventional media and, and mainstream media. And you talk in the article about um, the, the both sides approach by mm. um, a number of uh, media outlets. Can you just talk us through what you mean by the both sides approach? Well, it's, um, you know, it's a term that people used in the Trump era um, that um, if you have one perspective or... Some, you know, an Aboriginal person, for example, then you must have a no campaigner. Mm. And if you don't get a no campaigner, they're not going to run the yes campaign. Um, and so it's this, what it does is it allows a kind of false equivalence of racist or, you know, poorly informed or deliberately um, deceptive arguments to be elevated to the same level as, you know, this kind of very lengthy, um, you know, parliamentary and government supervised process for recognition and so you had you know nonsensical arguments being elevated to the same level as um the recognition arguments but as it got closer to the campaign it became worse in that um station radio especially television wouldn't run any yes if they couldn't find a no and so no would just the no campaign just ran dead and so in the lead-up, a couple of weeks in the lead-up to the actual vote, we just couldn't get on morning television or um, just simply because no wouldn't offer up a spokesperson. And so then you just didn't get the, you know, the yes campaign having um, the capacity to talk to the Australian people, um, whereas the no campaign was kind of shepherded by uh, most media outlets in in a way um and so they got a lot more exposure than um than the yes arguments i mean i wasn't a part of yes 23 obviously only pat and i work under the Uru dialogue yep. umbrella um um but you know it, we just struggled you know the media fashions the way in which the debate is run um and and it just didn't give space for um, for those yes for those yes voices. And I think um, that was the that was the problem because the media often never interrogated, particularly around the amendments, particularly around arguments of equality, etc. Just never really interrogated what was being said, um, um, and just you know willingly ventilated any views really when it came to the no side do you think that that was uh, an inability of the media to be able to deal with the the kind of inherent nuance within the debate or do you think it was a deliberate deliberate strategy by the media to undermine 
the voice or some sections of the media to undermine the voice? I don't know enough about media, I suppose, to know that there was an absolute conspiracy. But what I do know, and I think this has played out in relation to the High Court decision and the release, um, and in relation to indefinite detention, mm-hmm. yep. that there is a really poor, there's a pretty low literacy in the media around the rule of law and law. Yep. And so when they were running nonsensical arguments around the voice and the voice provision, and I mean, you had people who'd never practised constitutional law being elevated to the same status as significant constitutional lawyers like the Solicitor General or Brett Walker. Um, now, on reflection, I, I, it, it's pretty clear that they didn't really understand what they were talking about, and I think that's, um, that's important. But I think, the, and I think just in relation to the indefinite detention decision, you can see the media just not understanding the importance of the rule of law in the High Court and just rushing down this little laneway to say, well, you know, you weren't organised and you didn't get this done. What well, drove a lot of the referendum coverage, sorry, mate, is... Um, no, you're right. It's, just cl- it's clickbait. It's, it's, it's wanting people to tap on your story overrides entirely. I mean, the beat-up about Dreyfus, for example, was just a beat-up. I mean, it was a ridiculous question, and they did that to Albanese all the time in those major conferences. Just have the same question over and over again until you get a gotcha moment, and they can run with that. One of the yeah, the, the main thing about the you know just to sidetrack for a second here because um, why not? I mean, the, the main thing about the the indefinite t- um, detention decision by the High Court, the the. The, the calls from the media, and you know, you expect it from the opposition because that's part of the game, but the calls from the media in particular to have a legislated response to a ruling where the government hasn't even been able to right, read the ruling mm. um, thus far just sort of highlighted to me, as you just said, just a, a total lack of literacy when it comes from the media when it comes to basic civics in this country and, and the power structures that... Um, they're supposed to cover on a daily basis and that was something that we saw throughout the course of the referendum as well. Yeah, really did and also that really fundamental point right, in in relation to a definite detention that the government, the executive can't be playing the role of the judiciary Yeah, Yeah. and that separation of powers point should have been properly prosecuted so that Australians could understand what was going on here that it was a separation of powers problem um, and it's not okay for the government um, or the previous government to have done what they did. Now, I mean, I think that speaks to the previous government because if you recall, the Prime Minister also, you know, signed himself into multiple ministries in violation of Westminster principles. Yep. But again, in terms of the rule of law, they also um, wanted to breach the separation of powers. And I think that's an important point. It speaks to the fact that they are a bit loose when it comes to the rule of the rule of law. But instead, we've just spent the past week focused on the fact that, you know, Mark Dreyfus raised his voice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, if we could have a discussion about the Canberra Press Gallery and what a brittle jaw it has. Um, but, you know, also a reminder that this decision on um, indefinite detention was a 7 to zero decision by the High Court of Australia, mm-hmm. basically indicating to um, government and all in sundry that you can't lock people up indefinitely without um, good reason or any reason yeah. um, uh, when it yeah. comes to these matters. And, you know, the, the, the media has been having a field day with uh, the various uh, arrests that have happened subsequently since then. And, of course, all that leads to us talking 
about those things and not talking about the, the heart of the issue, which, again, I bring back to, to the voice. And um, uh, it seems to me that, as a country, we weren't able to have those informed, nuanced discussions, no. mainly uh, for a couple of reasons, because people had other things on their mind, and that's fine, but also just because of the way that um, the Yes campaign had to combat just the, the amount of nonsense that was coming at, at them from from uh, no campaigners and conspiracy theorists. And that just goes to show to me that, you know, we can't have these kind of conversations in this country while the media is the way it is and, and why politics is the way it is. So I think, I think a couple of things. I think civic education plays a really key role and, you know, there's no reason to think why the media would have a better understanding of civics than the mainstream community. I, I guess you, sh- you should say they should because they're professional journalists. they paid a lot. One of the, 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 the reason why the indefinite detention question is relevant to this conversation is that misinformation is actually a symptom of a broader problem. And, and the broader problem is this, and it's one that we won't grapple with in Australia and one that I raise in our monthly, and in, in my monthly, sorry, our, is now ours. Um, and that is, I was deeply disturbed as a public lawyer to hear just how many ordinary Aussies just absolutely despise politicians, politics, and don't trust parliament, don't trust bureaucracy. Mm. I mean, I've been... My, my very first area of research as a constitutional lawyer was civics. And um, and it's, it's, it is disturbing because liberal democracies function on legitimacy, and legitimacy really dri- is driven by faith and trust of citizens in public institutions. Now, we know from polling it's at an absolute low. Um, so when the 67 referendum was held... It was, it was really high, Australia's faith in politicians and the system. Today, it's at, it's at the lowest we've ever seen. And so for us, going around saying, hey, we, we, we want a constitutional right to be heard, they kept saying to us, look, we support the voice, but the politicians are never going to listen to you. Politicians don't listen. They're, they're always going to screw you over. We don't know why you have faith in them. We don't know why you have faith in the system. Um, and that came from right across socioeconomic spectrum, political spectrum, and I think it's deeply worrying because I think compulsory voting allows us to pretend that there's this widespread legitimate or, or acceptance of the system when, in fact, people are forced to vote. And it shield, I mean, I'm in favour of compulsory voting, but it shields some really deep-seated... Um, issues that Australians do have in our political system, and that was one of the key factors that drove the no vote because it was for a very long time 60-40 mm-hmm. um, in favour. And then, of course, they've mapped it where Dutton said no, it dropped. Um, and there was always a kind of that rusted on 30, but the rest were kind of... A lot of the research in the last two months showed they were just... It was like a... Um, they were just going back and forth, back and forth, um, like a um, kind of tightrope situation, going back and forth from yes and no to yes and no, just not really knowing, but just didn't have any trust in politicians um, to be able to deliver the voice. Um, and, I, and I think all of those things are really interesting things that we need to reflect on in terms of what the future looks like for Indigenous rights. 
Um, it's, it just seems to me like we're at a really crucial part of our history where there has been the rise of Trumpism. Um, a lot of that uh, has been connected um, to, a, to a certain extent through what we went through with, with the pandemic and, and governments being more interventionist in our lives than they ever have been before. We have the rise of social media and the algorithms that are specifically designed to keep people within their echo chambers. Yep. And so you can find the answer to any quandary or any prejudice that you have uh, on social media and you can stay there for your entire yep. life. It uh, just seems to me, and that has been sort of coupled with an actual fall in the in the voter rates. People who are not turning up to vote at all is on the rise, yeah. and on, yeah. in the rise in a, on the rise in in a big way. It just seems to me that we're um, in a really, I guess, dangerous moment for our democracy here. And um, for someone like you, Megan, that that must be terribly troubling, as it is should be for most of us. Yeah, I mean, I think for our political leaders, um, there's always been a, a view that um, we we are in the engagement space. We're not the, hey, we're going to disengage and walk away. And um, we will always acknowledge that after a certain period of time, these people weren't leaving. And, and that's why you see that early kind of iterations of the voice in the early 1800s is you see Aboriginal leaders saying, hang on, we, we need a say in these colonial parliaments. It's just interesting that this opportunity came a lot. I mean, no one knew whether we would get the opportunity of a referendum, but it did come along at a time where um, all of these forces are in play. And unlike 67, everybody has this kind of visceral, well, not everybody, but um, there's this view of our political system is not serving us, which which was actually the genesis of Uluru, right? Yeah. Uluru wasn't a... I mean, even though the campaign ran it, you know, a kind of political campaign, um, meaning it, it aligned itself with politicians of the day, Uluru wasn't a political message. It was a message to the Australian people about Australians working together to convince politicians because the politicians are the problem. Once you put politicians up front, the the whole proposal became a problem, right? Because it's politicians that Australians don't like or don't trust. I guess, um, but uh, Uluru was always a grassroots movement. It was never about cozying up to power. I guess that's where you know the the national debate around the voice kind of fed into a lot of those prejudices that people have around politicians and the systems which govern them. And and I guess. Looking at it very superficially, a lot of people could have been um, mistaken for looking at the whole debate as a sort of a navel-gazing exercise for for the political class. Um, yeah. And I think that's something that also f- sort of fed into into the outcome. And by the end of the campaign, people were kind of glad to see it over, over and done with. And I think that was reflected in the result as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um I think so. I mean, again, it, uh, like today the drum was on and there was a couple of black fellows, Luther Paul Jackson and Roy R.C., talking about um, the outcome. I'm a bit like that. I'm still trying to figure out what happened. Um, but one of the things we didn't want was for the reform to be hijacked by retail Australian politics who just yeah. find, they just find a pathway to know that's 
that's what it was always about. And you got that inkling early on as the media started realizing that this was going to happen. Um, and, um, and so that was, um, it, it was actually very difficult to avoid uh, because once politicians and conventional political campaigns kick in, it's really hard to move outside of that model. But it's certainly what was, it wasn't envisaged by Uluru that this would be dominated by politicians, but they did hijack it. Mm. That was the theory out of all the dialogues and at Uluru that um, politicians hijack everything and that the only way you'd get change would be to engage with the Australian people on these really fundamental ideas. And, look, I've been reading a lot of literature after it, of of course, and um, I guess what we have now is what we didn't know we had before the referendum, and that is six million people. Mm. Um, We do have a movement and we have an identifiable group of Aussies who say, look, we're invested in this. Um, and we have a very, very clear electoral map now. And, and part yeah. of that electoral map shows us that uh, people in uh, remote First Nations communities right across the north end of Australia, despite some people on the Yes campaign pretending to represent those communities and speak on their behalf, uh, voted overwhelmingly in favour of, of the voice. And as you yeah. said, there were uh, at least six million people like them that did. Are there any sort of machinations underway that um, uh, is looking to harness that support um, as we move forward? Yeah, so what we're hearing from across the country, and I know lots and lots of people who are engaging in this, um, and that is those groups, not necessarily campaign groups, but local groups of non-Indigenous people reaching out to... I've been to a couple of events in South East Queensland, just talking about what happened, what's the future look like, healing circles. There's a lot of that stuff going on and it's being initiated by and run by non-Indigenous Aussies that are engaging the communities that they worked with on yet. Um, And it's got a very different vibe to what it's been in the past. It's not government organised, it's not led by RA, it's not led by anyone. It's organic and... um, and, and we'll see, we'll see they, how, how that goes, but it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, and I think, I don't think we can waste time either. Like, you just can't sit back and analyse the referendum for the next two years. As I'm sure there are academics that will make I'm careers that, out I'm of it. I'm sure but, there um, is. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll I mean, make I careers think, out I of do it. Think that they absolutely will. Well, they did during the whole campaign. Did we you were, just hear um, what you were saying, Megan? <laughs> Sorry? Did you just hear what you were saying? Did you realise how ridiculous it was as you were saying it? There's going to be people that make a career out of this um, <laughs> um, in the academic no, sphere in I particular. Mean, I mean, I, I, I think I'm talking about those who who critique yeah, right. things and analyse things but don't do. I think there's a, you know, I, I work in a profession that's kind of a split profession and, um, you know, you either... You know, you either critique or you're out there. I'm a very active law reformer. I'm involved in a number of different law reforms, and I'm not one of those academics who sit back and critiques other people's work. But what I would say from one of the comments you made is really important, I think, um, and that was about remote communities, because I think that's a really good example, I think, of the dissonance between what remote Aboriginal people wanted and what professional party politicians think is best for them. Yeah. Um, and, and most Australians know that generations of 
and generations of politicians have failed in those communities, and that won't change anytime soon. But um, people always talk on behalf of remote communities, right? But what we know, they spoke for themselves on October the 14th. Well, yep, and that's a double, and, that's your double whammy huge there. Numbers. And that goes a lot to yeah. what, what we've been talking about. It's, it's um, people being manipulative and, and talking on behalf of people that they clearly yeah. don't talk to. But also goes to yeah. the laziness of the Australian media not to go to those communities and find out from those people themselves what people were thinking on the ground. Um, Megan. Well, I mean, ABC is a good example of that. I mean, they would walk into remote communities and find the, lo- the local no-person. But yes. all this time, I mean, the most important thing about... Well, it's not the most important thing about that remote area, though, but, but it did show that all of those ABC stories, which are mostly skewed to know, um, is, is, is the way in which media go into communities and selectively find the, the story that they want because they want to create this... this, this argument of the elitist urban city dweller versus the remote communities. But remote communities voted overwhelmingly in favour of this review because it, 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 would have had, it would have empowered them. It would have given them a mechanism to allow their voices, not solely politicians, to be directly heard on matters that impact their communities. Who would know better than remote communities? Exactly. Yeah, it goes feeds into a lot of the half-assed sort of eugenics that was happening around the place. It's kind of like the not on the wig um, sort of um, commentary around real Aborigines opposed to uh, elite Aborigines in, in the city. Professor Megan Davis, got to let you go. Thank you so much for coming on. I guess the only way that we can um, address these matters is to talk about them and talk about them with uh, yes. nuance, aspiration and generosity. And, um, you know, that's something that, that I'm committing myself to. I know it's something that um, you do through your very nature. Um, so I thank you for coming on the show tonight and, and talking to not only me, but um, the Triple R audience. No, thank you. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate um, the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.